Hi! Hey! Welcome to The Cordial Catholic, a podcast for non-Catholics, new Catholics, and those looking to dig deeper into the Catholic faith. I'm K. Albert Little, an evangelical convert to Catholicism, and this podcast is born out of one particular idea. It began for me when a Protestant pastor I was working for asked me the question, what's more important, the Bible or tradition? Well, answering that question led me on a deep dive into the history of Christianity. A history of the Bible, how it was put together, what books got in, what books were left out, and why. How the early church, the ancient church, worshipped up through the ages, why the Reformation happened, and all kinds of questions like that. Well, my deep dive into history led me to look into the Catholic Church. And it was then that I began reading from actual Catholic theologians what the Catholic Church actually believed, that I realized what I thought Catholics believed, what I thought a new book of Catholicism, was based in large part on misinformation and, more often than not, on simple misunderstandings. Well, this podcast serves to fill in that same gap. The gap between what you think Catholics believe and what we actually do. Each week I have a real Catholic conversation with a real Catholic thinker from the heart of the Catholic Church. No misinformation here. And this week, I'm joined by one of my favorite guests to have on this program, Dr. Lawrence Feingold, to talk about the sacraments, the nature of the sacraments, what they are, why they are, how they work, and to debunk some really common misunderstandings about the sacraments. And this episode, this very episode, is a fantastic one to listen to if you are a longtime Catholic a brand new Catholic, or really aren't Catholic at all, because this is really a revival meeting on the sacraments, a big tent revival meeting. We go deep into what they are, and Dr. Feingold's enthusiasm for the sacraments really just infuses this episode, and really, gosh, they are an incredible thing. The sacraments, way of living, lifestyle, expression of our faith, the, the, the economy the way that God communicates with us and empowers us with grace. And as we hear in this episode, has always worked this way and continues to work this way in the Catholic faith. It's, oh gosh, a fantastic episode. You really need to hear this and share it with your friends. I, I promise you, you will, you will love it. You will absolutely love this episode. So please, I hope that you, I hope that you do. This episode and many others are brought to you by my patrons at patreon.com slash cordialcatholic and those who provide one-time donations. I have one new patron to thank, first of all. Thank you, Julie, for your support on a monthly basis, helping to underpin this show. Thank you so much for that support. And two one-time donors, thank you, Karen, and thank you, Brian, for your one-time donations at paypal.me slash cordialcatholic because those also help to underpin the show and to keep it going and growing and reaching brand new people and a brand new audience. So thank you. Thank you for your support. It's kind of mind-boggling that you like this show and you would support it. So thank you. It always blows my mind. And thank you for helping it to continue. Guys, thanks so much. Now, without any further ado, my absolutely fantastic conversation with Dr. Lawrence Feingold on the sacraments. Please listen, and I know you will, enjoy. Hey guys, welcome back to the show. Thank you for watching. Thank you for being here. Thank you for tuning in. If you are watching on YouTube, just a reminder, you can also listen to us on podcasts, everywhere podcasts are available. If you're listening on podcasts, well, we're on YouTube at youtube.com slash the cordial Catholic to watch what you are hearing. We are going to have a fantastic episode this week. I guarantee you, uh, you will learn 
tons of new things. Uh, think of our faith in a brand new way. Uh, I am joined by one of my favorite guests to speak to, Dr. Lawrence Feingold. He's Associate Professor of Theology and Philosophy at Kendrick Glendon Seminary in St. Louis. And so many fantastic books. I've had you on the show a number of times to speak of your past works. Uh, things like The Eucharist, Mystery of Presence, Sacrifice, and Communion, and Faith Comes from What is Heard. And your brand new book, Ear to My Hand, Touched by Christ, The Sacramental Economy. It's fantastic. Dr. Lawrence Feingold, welcome back to the program. I totally butchered the introduction there. I'm glad it's not your first time on the show. At least we have a bit of a rapport. Thanks for being here. Welcome. Thank you so much for inviting me. So I want I to begin by talking an mm-hmm. overview here. So I'm thinking in particular of our non-Catholic listeners, the new Catholic listeners, who would go, okay, Dr. Feingold, what is a sacrament? Because I know I say non-Catholic, and that's a wide range of people. Even Protestant is a wide range of, of Christians. Okay. I'm thinking of my own evangelical upbringing, my own background, where if I heard the word sacrament, I would go, oh, <laughs> You know, our, our Sunday service was some worship music, which we called worship, the, the music, the singing, uh, a sermon, and once a month communion. Sometimes baptism, which was merely just a symbol that you're choosing to follow Christ as a bit of an older adult or older teenager. But there was nothing in there of the sacraments, nothing at, at all, this idea of anything sacramental happening. It was all merely symbolic in, in memory or, or, or to symbolize a commitment to Christ. So can we can we kind of do a do a, a bird's eye view picture like from the, from the very beginning or from a, a top-down view of what is a sacrament? <laughs> okay. Yeah, great question. And then what I'd like to put in there as well is why are there sacraments? So the what and the why and they go together intimately. So let's start with the what. Um so a sacrament um the first part is what you see and hear. And so in that sense the, um, the faithful do know this, right? So um, the sensible sign. So a sacrament is a sensible sign that represents our sanctification by Christ. Um, and, and the sensible sign is what the faithful perceive, right? So, and that's two parts, um, gestures or actions um, and words. And the gestures very often involve some matter. So baptism and the Eucharist be the clearest in confirmation. Um, so that's the first part of the definition. Second, and that's common to the rites of the Old Covenant as well and other religions of the world. All religions use sensible signs. All right, what's proper, unique to the Catholic sacraments? That's the important part. And they do what they represent. So they're sacred signs of our sanctification that actually sanctify in the here and now as long as I don't put up an obstacle to that sanctification. And they sanctify not just in any old way, but they sanctify precisely in the way that the sacred sign um, represents. All right, so let's take baptism. So that's the easiest example. So um, we're immersed in water and come out, and that represents cleansing, right? We take baths to cleanse from dirt, but here it's representing cleansing from spiritual dirt, which is sin. Original that we get from our um, from the origins and from Adam, and um, personal, everything that I've added up to it. All right, babies don't have any of the personal, but I was baptized at 29, so I had a lot of personal <laughs> there. That's what's represented, and it does it. 
in the moment. There's something else represented that people often miss, and that's um, because um, we don't usually do baptism by immersion um, in Catholic parishes today. But in the early church, it would have been, and in Judaism, by full-body immersion, and thus it would have represented also a kind of death in the immersion with Christ and arising out of the baptismal font with Christ risen, and therefore an entrance into his death and resurrection as the pattern of the Christian life. And again, with the idea that it does it, meaning there's a death, a death to the old man and a rising with Christ, right? That's going to be the pattern of my whole life. All right, so that's the second part of the definition. It does what it represents. Or right, even clearer is the Eucharist. All right, part of the sacred, so the sacred sign there is um, bread and wine and the words of the institution narrative that Jesus said at the Last Supper, this is my body, right, given for you. This is the my blood, the chalice of my blood. And so um, if it does what it represents, what that means is it becomes his body and his blood. And we receive his body and blood into our bodies. And that represents being assimilated to Christ and receiving him as our spiritual nourishment to, to get the nourishment to live the charity that he um, lived to the end. Right, so that would be the you know, kind of the brief ally. That's the second part. There's a third part. Jesus instituted them. And we'll talk about that, I think, later on. Yeah. That's our second one. And, and, but the reason for that is because in order to get, I can, we can all invent signs. Right? Every artist invents different kinds of signs. Um, but what we can't do is make them signs that do what they say. Right? That's proper to the creative word of God. Right? So God at the beginning, let there be light. And that word creates the light. Right? That's, that's a property of the divine word, but not normally of human words. Um, and so they have to be instituted by one who has that power to make them do what they say. And that's the word. Right? In this case, the word made flesh. And I'll, we'll come back to that when we talk about um, their, their power. How do they have the power to do this? And then there's a fourth part, and that's Jesus entrusted them to his church, precisely to build up his church. And so the idea here is the sacraments make the church and, and not the other way around, right? So it's not we who make the sacraments, the church that makes sacraments, but the sacraments make the church what she is. And the easiest way to think about that is baptism, right? Without baptism, there are no church because there are no members. And without the Eucharist, the church wouldn't have her um, supreme way of worshiping the Father. And so she wouldn't properly be the church and the new temple. And maybe we can talk more about that. So the, the sacraments are sacred signs and that do, that accomplish the sanctification they represent instituted by the word made flesh, Jesus Christ, and entrusted to his church, which they build up by their power. Right? And the catechism talks about the sacraments as the masterpieces of God. I love that. Right? So God is an artist, right? He's the divine artist that's made the world. He's the divine artist that guides salvation history. And at the summit of salvation history, we get the new covenant, and the new covenant 
has is a body, right? It's the body of Christ. He's the head. We're the members. What's the connection between the head and members? There's got to be um, veins, arteries, nerves, um, sinews, etc. And those are the sacraments that join the members with the life of the head. Right? So if I'm a toe or a pinky, I got to get, where do I, how do I access the life of my head? Jesus Christ, baptism, the Eucharist, confirmation, and penance when I need it, et cetera. Right? The seven sacraments accomplish that. And in that sense, they're the masterpieces of God. But what's so beautiful about them is they're so humble. Right, So they're not like Michelangelo's Last Judgment or something, which bowls you over by its power. The sacraments are proper to God who doesn't need to display his power like that. Right? And so he uses the simplest things, water, bread, wine, olive oil, the human voice, marital consent. Right? The simplest things, but gives them an infinite power, which is his divine power to work through them. I don't want to interrupt you. This is so fantastic. I could just sit here and listen to you all day. There's so much in there that I want to unpack, and I I love that way of putting it. I mean, the first thing that sticks out to me, and this is maybe a bit of a tangent, but I heard I heard a talk given by a well-meaning Baptist minister who was talking about the Catholic faith and his experience of of Catholics in the Eucharist, and he said that he was really put off one day when he used to be, he of course was an ex-Catholic, which many people who talk about the Catholic faith are in that camp, unfortunately, and will have some misconceptions. And he said that he was really off put one day when he was an altar server as a kid and and the priest dropped the, the consecrated host on the floor and in his words, freaked out and wouldn't let anyone step there and put some signs up and got really like, and, and was really upset that this was, and he goes, he goes, it's, it, it's a wafer on the floor. Like, like these, these Catholics are, are really, are really messed up here with this. Like they're getting so worked up over a wafer on the floor. And, and my thought as a convert was, wait a minute, like how incredible, incredibly humbling is it that Christ would come to us as a baby? for one thing, then grow up, be a man, and then come to us in this consecrated host in the Eucharist and be so vulnerable for us. You know, that this priest wasn't being goofy as this guy proceeded later in life, right? This was the ultimate reverence of this humble God who's willing to, to, to be so vulnerable as that even today, right? That, that kind of blew me away. Yeah, so that's part of that humility yeah. is that Christ wants to come to us through the sacraments and especially through the Eucharist. It's the only sacrament in which he's substantially present in his humanity. And yet he wants that humanity to uh, appear before us to our senses under the humble appearances of bread and wine. Um, And that's part of, we could say it's the sacraments are all of a piece with the incarnation. The word Becoming flesh, right? Saying the best expression of this, I think, is Philippians chapter two, that speaks of this self-emptying. Right? Though he was in the form of God, he didn't hold that as something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, and ultimately obedience, obedience unto the cross and death. Right? And so, if that's the logic of the incarnation, that's taken in some sense even further by the sacraments. And so Christ now comes to us, having emptied himself, not only of the the glory of his divinity, but even of the beauty of his humanity. It's all there, but we can't see it, right? So on the cross, the the good thief could see the 
the humanity, although he couldn't see the divinity, and he believed the divinity, seeing the humanity. In the Eucharist, we have to live by faith, not seeing either the humanity or the divinity. And so again, it's taking what every Protestant does, believing in Christ's humanity, it's taking that logic of faith, right, still further. Yeah, I I spoke recently to a he was he was in, in his youth a Muslim and became an atheist and became an evangelical Christian in Iraq, which was a pretty incredible story that he tells on the on the podcast, and then goes on to become an Anglican priest and then and then a Catholic. And I spoke to him recently after his Catholic conversion, and now he's on the way to priesthood as a Catholic. He's being he's being ordained in the ordinariate, and uh, he spoke of this idea that that I I hadn't really thought about deeply before in terms of Protestants encountering the sacraments and the Eucharist in particular is, is the road to Emmaus, right? Where Christ is unpacking the, 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 the scriptures, which, which as Protestants, we did very well and Protestants continue to do that very well. But then, but then, then he's revealed in the breaking of the bread, right? So all the, all the, the book learning, all the, all the spiritual nourishment in, in the, the scriptures is then culminated Right. In, the, in the Eucharist, right? In right. the sacraments. So that, um, Luke 24, it gives such a beautiful um, representation of the unity of um, the word in Scripture and the word in the, yeah. in the sacraments and how they, yeah, how they have to go together. Yeah, I thought it was fantastic. So the, the, the say the evangelical listener, the Protestant listener to this, who, who wouldn't have encountered this, the, the sacraments would go, okay, well, we don't have these anywhere in our church. Where do they come from? We can go into why they don't have them. I think that's also an interesting discussion too. Why those? Why they were jettisoned? But what would you say to somebody who says, "Well, well, how do we know that Christ established these? Because we don't have them anywhere. We don't think that's being very important. So where do they come from? Like how would how would we uh, yeah, approach so, that idea? Right. It's it's very simple. Um, the the sources of theology are scripture and tradition. And tradition. All right. So. Protestants obviously understand the first one, but the, the second one is tradition is precisely um, Jesus communicated first orally, and then that got put into um, um, into written form um, in the course of the first century, but it was lived from the beginning in the liturgy by the first Christian, precisely as we see in Acts of the Apostles and the first chapters um, and in Saint, the letters of St. Paul. And so um, tradition is crucial also for passing on so those are our two sources. How do we know that Jesus is through the sacraments? The two sources show us that, but not equally clearly. So here there is, most Protestants accept two sacraments, right? So baptism and the Lord's Supper. And from the Catholic perspective, obviously that's false. There are seven that was defined at the Council of Trent, but it's not crazy because the sacraments aren't equal in, in their importance, nor in how they appear in Scripture, and then the life of the early church. And it is true that the sacraments, so I spoke of them as a kind of, um, um, the masterworks of God as making up this organism, the body of Christ. And these seven sacraments have a hierarchy. There's a foundation and that's baptism, right? So yes, there's a reason why all of our Protestant brothers and sisters acknowledge baptism, because that's the foundation of the whole sacramental system. And yes, that's clearest in scripture. And because you need to enter the gate. But baptism, and if you read it, Acts of the Apostles attentively, baptism is coupled with the giving of the Spirit. Right? And that's our sacrament of confirmation. And it doesn't appear so easily because it doesn't have its own name at first. 
it goes together with baptism in the first millennium, in the first centuries, always administered together. Um, we can see it, though, if we read attentively the Acts of the Apostles. It shows up as a distinct sacrament in Acts 8 and in Acts 19, both cases in which some are baptized before receiving the Spirit because of certain accidental circumstances. Acts 8, it's because it's a deacon baptizing them, and he can't confirm. And in Acts 19, it's because they received this baptism of John, and then they get baptized, and then Paul lays his hands on them and gives them the Spirit. And so confirmation is gigantic, but it doesn't appear separately distinct because it was never meant, at least not in the, our sources, to be a, a kind of distinct, separate sacrament, but it completes and perfects baptism. Um, and then um, penance, though, does very clearly appear in Scripture, if you have guys to see it, and that's in John chapter 20. And it's really beautiful because it's an Easter gift. Jesus alluded to the forgiveness of sins earlier, and he himself forgave sins, the paralytic, Mary Mag, the, um, um, but, um, and he promises it to Peter and the apostles, Matthew 16 and 18. But it's in John 20, Easter Sunday, that he breathes on the apostles and gives them the power um, whose sins you forgive are forgiven. And it's really important to keep that in mind. Penance is an Easter gift, right? And it's helpful when I'm on the 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 confession line, right? To remember the <laughs> gift to set me free, to enable me to partake of Easter joy. Yeah. And then um, anointing of the sick is the one that maybe is the hardest to find, but it's there too, hinted at, alluded to in Mark six thirteen, and that's where Jesus is sending out the apostles two by two, and he gives them the power to cure the sick. And Mark tells us that they anointed the sick. And so that would be there, the origin of our sacrament. But it's clearest in James chapter 5. That's where James promulgates it. And so it too is in Scripture. Now, the Protestant might say, well, okay, I grant you that those are rites in Scripture, but what enables us to call them sacraments? So that comes back to the question of definition. And so there's a different definition that Catholics operate from, the one I gave before, and the one that Luther and Calvin and other Protestants after them tended to use. They, Luther tended to conceive, uh, conceive sacraments as the, um, the visible sign of a divine promise. Um, and so he's giving a different definition that doesn't stress the actual um, doing of what they represent. Um, and what's interesting is that Catholics in the first millennium didn't have that definition either. So in the first millennium, um, there isn't a clear definition of sacrament. Um, St. Augustine used the broad definition, a sacred sign. And if you define it like that, well, there are lots of things that could fall in that. And so very often the fathers say sacraments, baptism, the Eucharist, and other things like that. And sometimes they give lists that are longer than our seven sacraments, sometimes shorter. But again, that's because you need a good definition before you know what falls under it. And then, if, as in the Reformation, you um, give a different definition, different things will fall under it. Um, but what's the importance of this? The importance of it is that Jesus wanted there to be a rich sacramental economy in which, yes, we've got a foundation baptism, we've got a queen, the, the culmination, the Eucharist, and we've got other sacraments that flesh out different aspects of the church's life. So I find it very helpful in doing catechesis about the sacraments to ask the why, so why sacraments in general? And first answer there is, well, we're 
bodily beings and we're social beings. So it's fitting for us to be sanctified by Christ, not just in my God corner. So last year during the pandemic, I set up, a, I mean, I, I have a God corner in my house my, and um, with a crucifix and a kneeler and a Bible. And, um, and yes, I can pray in my God corner and Catholics should pray a lot more in their God corners. But, um, but I'm not just a spirit and I've got a body. And so it's fitting that Jesus sanctify us using signs that are sensible and that we can receive publicly and communally right in the parish, in the church. And so that's that first thing. And then secondly, Jesus, the word became flesh. The word became visible. The word became man. And so it's fitting that we receive sacraments that are like him, visible and yet full of supernatural divine life. And that sanctify us through his cross and the power um, that he merited for us on Calvary. So another question is, all right, granted that it's fitting that there be sacraments instituted by Christ, why do we need seven sacraments? Why not just two? And um, I mean, you can say, well, seven is one of those biblical numbers. But um, a much better answer is what St. Thomas Aquinas gives. He looks at, he makes an analogy between what we need in our natural life and what we need in our supernatural life. And it makes sense that we should think about our supernatural life by looking at what we need in our natural life. Well, the first thing I need is to be born. In the, sac- in the spiritual life, baptism accomplishes that, supernatural birth. But then that's not all. I need to grow and be active, learn to, to move in the spirit as I move physically, right, and grow. And there's a sacrament for that, right? And that's confirmation which gives spiritual movement through the power of the Holy Spirit, leading me, not immediately, but progressively to spiritual maturity. Right? And so in, in this, it's different than in our physical life, right? it happens for us at a certain time. and we, But in the spiritual life, we're never fully mature, right? And we're always still growing. And so we need that principle of growth, which is confirmation. We need nourishment, sacrament of spiritual nourishment, the Eucharist. And we can't give that to us ourselves. And what's so beautiful here is, all right, that's not just any spiritual nourishment. We're being nourished by receiving the word incarnate. Jesus Christ in his body and blood, the victim of Calvary and the risen Lord, is making himself our spiritual nourishment. Sometimes in our physical life we get sick. So it makes sense that there be a sacrament of healing. And Luther, even though he didn't regard confession as a sacrament, properly speaking. And he spoke of it as, at least in some writings, as par- partially fulfilling the definition. No, this could be considered a sacrament um, and has very, very important anthropologically. In other words, sin is a burden and we need to unburden ourselves precisely by going to the one who died for our sins and to express them sensibly for all the reasons we said before. And yes, I should confess to God in my God corner, but I'm a sensible being and a social being, and Jesus became man for me. And so it's fitting that I go to his, the, the man who, through another sacrament, all right, so we haven't quite got there, holy orders, and is acting this person. And then there's preparation for death. So it's fitting that there be a sacrament to help us when we get weakened by physical and severe illness that puts us in danger of death and makes us very often um, weak um, in the body and 
and potentially in the spirit as well. And so this is part of the um, the beauty of the Christian life. When we're weak, we become spiritually strong through the power given to us by Christ. And so the sacrament of anointing of the sick, even though I've never received it, it's not regularly received by Catholics, but it has a beautiful place, we could say, in the sacramental economy. In other words, in the um, in the distribution of graces in the Christian life, to unlock the power of redemptive suffering in those who um, are afflicted. I, we're also social beings, and so it's fitting that we have social sacraments. So in in our in every society, you need some form of headship, um, as in the family and the parents. And so in the church, a headship that's not simply from below in the form of politics, um, but from above, right? Giving a grace that um, enables someone to act here in a role that would that no one could dare to aspire to, to act in the person of Christ, to administer the other sacraments in his person, especially the Eucharist, um, but also confirmation, penance, anointing the sick. And, and so that's holy orders. And then um, marriage obviously existed already from the beginning, but Jesus um, elevated it by becoming the bridegroom in his incarnation. So God is the bridegroom. The word becoming flesh became flesh as the bridegroom of his church, and he gave his life for his bride. And in doing so, becomes elevated matrimony to be a sacred sign of Christ's love for his church bride and vice versa, and thus gave to Christian couples this glorious power to represent that love, to be a living icon of it, and if he gives us a mission to represent it, he also gives us a grace to live it. And so that's that's the, and so what are Protestants missing by um, holding only two sacraments? This wealth that um, is, is more than just the two, and the most tragic loss was holy orders. So by denying holy orders, already in 1520, at the beginning of the Reformation, um, that destroyed the sacramental economy in itself, because except for baptism and matrimony, you need holy orders in order to have the other sacraments, especially the Eucharist. And so tragically, the Protestant world um, lost the Eucharist. It's a little more complicated than that, but in, in the short, simple form, and even though they acknowledge the Last Supper as a sacrament. Yeah, and I had a, a, maybe a friend of yours, Dr. John Bergsma, on the show a number of episodes ago, talking about the, the Old Testament roots of the priesthood and talking about how even in the Garden of Eden we see roots of the priesthood beginning to, to be formed and how that carries on. And a fantastic episode to listen to for listeners who are looking at, at, at why priests have that ability or, or why that's important for a priest to have holy orders. So much in here that <laughs> we could unpack. And mm-hmm. I want to I touch on the idea that, so I, when I was on my conversion journey, me and a friend were talking about the Catholic Church, and he said to me, you know, I couldn't live in a sacramental faith. Like, I don't think I could do it. I wouldn't be nourished by it. And I, I went, what's a sacrament at the time? Because I had no idea what sacraments yeah. were. But hearing you explain it like this, in this, in this eloquent definition, and the explanation of the different aspects of the different sacraments and, and how they how they support us during our lifetime. I mean, and now living as a Catholic, 
the, the sacraments are are deeply nourishing at every stage of life, right? I think I think of even I, I teach the RCAA course at our parish, and I think of the idea of of last rites of the anointing of the sick, and how it's seen historically. I think as this idea of of like manna for the journey, like nourishment for the journey, right? You're leaving, you're you're dying, you're going to you're going to to heaven to see Christ. Here's your last nourishment for the journey. To accompany, to accompany you, right? I think I think like a com- accompaniment bread or something is is one of the definitions. It, it's just beautiful, like that these sacraments are there to accompany us throughout life, right? That's a a beautiful picture. Mm-hmm. Excellent, yeah. So what, something I, I should have mentioned before, probably is, and there's a beautiful analogy with um, Christ's miracles, and so very often in the Gospels, he did his miracles precisely to highlight a sacrament. Right? And so the clearest example maybe is the paralytic, right? So, and the paralytic's let down from the roof in this dramatic passage, and Jesus doesn't immediately heal, right? But he heals the sin. Son, your sins are forgiven. But then to show that the Son of Man has the power, right, to forgive sins, get up and walk. And so what we see there is Christ's words have power, right? Just as, um, so throughout the Gospels, we see, so a leper comes to me. If you will, you can make me clean. I will be clean, or healing a blind man by putting mud on his eyes, right, and spitting on it. And and, and so there we get words and gestures that do what they represent, because Jesus has the power to do it. That's how we should think of the sacraments, that every time we receive a sacrament, we're like Mary Magdalene having the demons expelled. We're like that paralytic being healed of sin and of paralysis. And so that's the way to think of them, that we're encountering Jesus. He, he's not, so Jesus, on the 40th day, right after his resurrection, he ascended and left this world with his visible presence for the whole time of the church. But in this time of the church, he's more present to us, yeah. even than he was to his disciples then. They could see him, yes, but they, he was only in one place at one time. Right in Galilee. Um, but we can encounter him wherever we are, where we have a Catholic priest. And not just encounter him, but encounter him in the fullness of his humanity and divinity in the Eucharist and receive him into our bodies and offer ourselves with him. And, and yeah, so that's the way to think of the sacraments as encountering Christ with his words and gestures of power, to be touched by him today. Yeah, something that you taught me, I think, and I think Dr. Bergsman touches on this as well, and, and our, I've had him on a couple of times as well, is the idea that what Christ leaves us in the new covenant can't be worse than the old covenant, right? So, if, so, mm-hmm. and this always confused me. And you mentioned confession before and penance, and I, you know, as a, as an evangelical, I had that guard corner for fifteen years of my life. That's all I had was, was the guard corner. So I'd go to my room, I'd kneel by my bed, I'd pray at night, and ask to be forgiven for all these dumb things I did as a teenager and up into university, all kinds of dumb things, and I'd I'd ask for forgiveness. And I, I, you know this. I mean, people who who do this know this. You don't really feel anything, and if you don't, well, then shame on you sometimes. Because if you're a Pentecostal like I was, you're meant to feel something. Like you have to kind of get ramped up to try and feel like you're forgiven, right? If you're if you're at a prayer meeting and aren't slain in the spirit, aren't falling down on the ground, you're doing something wrong because you're expected to, to have these feelings sometimes. So. You then, so, so you know, if the idea is that Christ can't leave us with, with less than we had in the Old Covenant. He's got to give us more. And then 
well, we see in the Catholic Church, he does, right? He, has a, he gives the power to a priest to say, yes, you are forgiven through that power that Christ gives them. And, and you know this, Dr. Feingold, as well as I do, to hear those words, no matter what you've done to be in that confessional, is, is incredible, right? It's the best kind of revival meeting you can go to, in my opinion. So that is, that is so much better than just praying in your God corner to yourself, right? It's just, we're, we're, we're social, right? And Exactly. It makes sense that Christ would um, um, take, in other words, there's a beautiful continuity between the sacraments of the old covenant. So the father, we don't usually speak that way, but the um, fathers of the church and the scholastic theologians like Thomas Aquinas speak of sacraments of the old covenant and sacraments of the new, but they're not equal. So the sacrament, the old covenant had many sacraments, right? So circumcision parallel to baptism and the um, Passover and parallel to the Eucharist in many, many ways. So that would be, take some time to explain that fully. Um, and then sacrifices for sin, right? So when one committed um, sins, um, there were various sacrifices, right, that one could offer, and then also the Day of Atonement. And there's a priesthood, right, a visible priesthood from Aaron with rites of consecration that involved anointing and um, a washing first, etc. And so there's a, a marvelous, um, we could say, sacramental economy in the Old Covenant, but it's pointing forward. It's pointing backwards to the foundational events, Passover, the Exodus, and, and pointing forward to a messianic fulfillment, even if that's not clearly articulated. Um, and in the New Covenant, they point backwards, yes, to the Old Covenant, but above all to the Paschal mystery, to Christ. They make that grace present today and um, are, the, we could say, the pledge of future glory. The difference, though, is in the New Covenant, Christ has already come. And he's come precisely as the God-man who can speak those words of power, right? So the sacraments of the Old Covenant were essentially sacraments of hope pointing forward, whereas the sacraments of the New Covenant instituted by Christ, and that's why that's so important, um, can do, they can be instruments in his hand. And he's still the principal, Christ is our eternal high priest. And that means in every sacramental celebration, He's the principal priest, right? But he wants to work through a visible um, minister that he makes an instrument of his sanctification through the sacrament of holy orders. And again, there's that aspect of humility. He makes himself dependent on this human minister who might be a saint and might very much not be, tragically. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's unpack that for a minute because I think it was actually you that explained this to me in, in, in terms of the Eucharist. We had an episode on, on the Eucharist a while ago. I'll put it in the show notes for listeners who want to hear that because it was fantastic, of course. And and you had said, I mean, the, the, the thing with the Eucharist to understand is that the priest is just speaking Christ's words and, and therein lies the power to consecrate the Eucharist, which I think is amazing. Let's talk about the, the idea that the priest is doing these things, though, because this is what I think sometimes from some non-Catholics can get hung up on, the idea that, the, that a, a mere man is doing these things, that making these things present, and that we're, in a sense, having to rely on that person who could abuse that power, and that happens all the time, of course. What do we make of, you mentioned humility, what else do we make of this idea that, that we rely on, on, on a human being to receive these sacraments, this, this way of connecting to Christ comes through a, a human Right. Well, that's the logic of the incarnation, right? Christ, God, the Logos, the Word became 
visible, became flesh, became a human being. And it makes sense. And there's a just a much larger principle. And that's God loves participation, right? He didn't make the world so that he could lord it over the world. But he made the world so that the world could participate right, in his beauty, in his um, in his harmony, in his attributes in a finite way and with all different grades and so forth. And he's made rational beings so that we can be agents of his providence, right? Even in the natural order. And so it makes sense that in the supernatural order, he would want to maximize participation. And then we also see that means he's created free beings, just even in the natural order, who can sin. Why? Because free beings can also love freely. So he's created us for the good of that positive response of love, but knowing the risk of our rebellion and taking that risk. And so if that's what he does in creation, it makes sense that that's what he does in redemption and in the life of the church. He wants to make use of, yes, sinners, fallible human beings, everyone except for his mother, falls in that category, um, but to participate in redemption. And he gives us all a share of his redemptive power in, in all kinds of ways. And yes, in holy orders, but even before that, baptism and confirmation. Right? So baptism and confirmation makes those who receive it participants of his mission, what, as prophet, priest, and king. I mean, what could be greater than that? So that's what oftentimes I think is forgotten when people um, get scandalized about the priesthood. And all of the baptized and confirmed faithful are called to this glorious mission of participation. Right, of giving witness, and in giving witness and um, sharing in his kingly mission of rightly ordering and um, relationships and things um, in love and justice. Um, and then all that we do in giving witness and in rightly ordering things is something that we can then offer to the Father. But again, if I just offer it, yes, it's got all kinds of perfections, but Jesus has given us the ability to offer it with him in the Eucharist, with his infinite sacrifice present on the altar. Right? And so he's, and it's all about the whole life of the church is about participation with Christ and him in his mercy, giving us the dignity of making us co-workers. Um, yes, and so it's very fitting that along that lines, there be this other kind of participation through the priesthood, through holy orders, of enabling human beings not only to um, give this, to offer um, our participation, but to give human beings the share in a descending kind of mediation, um, giving the, the blessing of being instruments in the imparting of grace. So this is how that, so in the Catholic understanding, so one of the greatest mysteries and with regard to the sacraments, so I devote several chapters to it in the book here, um, is how how do they work? <laughs> of course, yeah, we can't. That's like asking the question, how did God create the universe? <laughs> Silly question, right? He, um, but um, we can say something. And the something that we can say is that the sacrament, the best way to think of the sacraments is as instruments being used by Christ in a way analogous, as I said before, to the words he used and the gestures he performed in working miracles of healing. And so he's taken his own humanity and his voice 
and his human desire, right, to heal someone, and made that the instrument of the healing. And But he's also used something else. He's used the faith of the recipient as well, right? And so there's, um, so we don't want to neglect that, because sometimes people get the wrong idea of Catholic sacraments overlooking the role of the recipient, which also plays into it, right? But nevertheless, the principles part has got to be the, um, the active part that Christ does. So he, Christ wants to make use of instruments today to sanctify us. And those instruments are these humble things that he chose. Water, a few words, right? I baptize you in the name of... So he's using those instruments. He's acting through them, but he wants there to be this other link, a human being who says them representing him. And the reason for that is, so nobody can just baptize themselves because that would be a sign that I can sanctify myself. And so there needs to be a minister, right? even if anybody can do it in baptism in an emergency, but you need a minister to show that this isn't coming from myself. This is coming from Christ. Right? So that's the role of, of holy orders in the sacramental system above all. And it's most crucial in the Eucharist because in the Eucharist, the priest there is representing Christ, the bridegroom, who's offering his sacrifice on behalf of his bride. And so it's a spousal nuptial mystery. Right? And that's that's the reason for a male priesthood, so that the minister represents the bridegroom giving himself for his bride. And yes, we're all the bride. Women have an advantage in helping <laughs> to understand themselves as the bride. I think the incredible thing, I think that it was probably, again, you who talked about this in our episode on the Eucharist, is these are kind of the way that God's always worked, right? The, the beautiful logic of the Catholic faith is that, is that un, unlike my evangelical faith, where God is is very much hidden because I'm praying to uh, to God, I can't see him, I'm receiving a symbolic kind of communion, I'm, I'm asking for forgiveness, and I can't see anything, where there, there's none of that physicalness of, of God <laughs> in it being present. In, in the Catholic faith, things are very visible, things are tangible, and God is working through through people. And we see, you've taught me this, Dr. Feingold, we see in, in Scripture, throughout the history of Scripture, God working this way, in tangible things, through people, right? Through the Virgin Mary, through through the very first people, through, through Abraham, through all these different people, throughout time. This is the logic of how God works. And the Catholic Church con- continues this, where I see a real break from that in, in non-sacramental kind of Protestant circles. It's kind of an abrupt break, right? Right. right. In other words, we want to be in continuity with the, with the old covenant and the kind of, um, but yet with this radical newness that the, um, the word has become flesh in the fullness of time and takes and elbows them and gives them a whole new power. And we represent that in Catholic theology, that's um, the meaning of the words Ex opere operato. Sorry for the Latin. But what that means is simply from the work done. And what we understand by that is if the all the elements that Jesus inst- instituted for a sacrament, so that would be the, the stuff, the matter, say water in case of baptism, the words, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. The minister in the case of baptism, any human being who intends to do what the church does, and then a recipient who's not baptized, and is alive and, and intends to be baptized if he's capable of intention. That is, if he's at the age of reason, or if he's not capable of intention, then doesn't have to intend. And, and if you have all those things, it's, it's effective 
because Christ is the one doing the work. So basically that expression, ex opere operato, which was a cause of scandal at the time of the Reformation and was rejected by the Protestant leaders, what it really is pointing to is Christ is the one working and Christ is not going to be, um, is not going to fail in what he's doing unless I obstinately um, put up the block of um, obstinate lack of faith or obstinate lack of repentance. But otherwise, Christ is going to be um, successful in what he does. And so that's what we mean by that, because he's the one acting through these instruments, one of them a living instrument, the minister, and then words and um, water, bread and wine, and olive oil, etc. You mentioned earlier the idea of of these veins, and I love that that idea where 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 Christ is at top, and and there are veins that we are receiving the, the nourishment from through the sacraments. And I think back to, okay, so as an evangelical, the idea of nourishment would have been for me. I mean, spiritual reading the Bible, of course, does nourish us, and as Catholics, it does as well. And then the the, the sermon on Sunday morning would be meant to. To nourish us, to inspire us to live the Christian life, to help mm-hmm. and, and teach us. And that was kind of the, the center point. I think uh, Louis Boyer talks about this in one of his books. That's, as in the Protestant world, that's the, sac- that's the center of the service. And, and then communion, which we have maybe once a month, would be, and I always hated it. I always hated communion because it was just standing in line, getting your grape juice and your cracker. It felt so... I know now what I was missing. I think this was a prophetic kind of longing for me. <laughs> I always was kind of annoyed by it because it was just, why are we doing this just to symbolize this thing? Like, what's the, what's, what's the point? I never really got it as an evangelical. But the conduits for grace in that position are really, I mean, the Bible and the singing is spiritually nourishing, and then the, the sermon are these spiritual nourishing things. You take the idea of the sacraments, though, as these things that are meant to, 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 to feed us and nourish us throughout our lives and the kind of the, the conduit of grace that, that God gives us is so very different. You mentioned kind of how it works. I wonder like the role of, and this gets me controversial amongst Protestants, the, the role of, of, of me in that, because that can be seen as right. The, the whole notion that Catholics work out their salvation or do all these kind of works to get grace or, or work to do something. And of course we have to do some kind of work in responding to, to receive that grace, I think, right? I think everyone would agree that just logically. But how do we sort out the idea that Catholics are working out their salvation by receiving these sacraments and that this is this kind of ritualized or or very re- religiousized, you know, it's a religion. It's having to jump through hoops to get to heaven. How do we kind of counteract that idea? Right. So remembering that Christ is, is the one who's working. I mean, it's... Yeah. it's so the reason... Sacraments aren't the only way that we get grace. Right? So, so let me say something about how do we get grace? If I'm this pinky on Christ's body, how do I get the life from the head? And so in, in, in the divine plan, um, there are two fundamental ways, right? It's word and sacrament, or we could say sacrament and desire for the sacraments. And that's expressed in prayer. So the two fundamental ways that we grow in grace is the ordinary way and that's a sacramental and christ there is the the direction would be descending right christ um but then he also says right and and to to demonstrate that we could give tons of 
quotes from scripture where which speak of the sacraments doing, right? So baptism, giving life, etc., forgiving sins, doing these things. But at the same time, and scripture also tells us, Sermon on the Mount, ask and you will receive, right? Knock and it will be given to you. And that's this, we could say the second fundamental way, our desire expressed in prayer. is basically prayer is the unfolding of the desires of our heart before God. And so um, for those who don't have access to the sacraments, think of unbaptized mankind. They don't have the sacramental channel, but they very much can be desiring that union. And then Protestants who are missing six of the seven sacraments, let's say, for example, um, they um, have the grace of baptism and they have desire for the other sacraments. Um, and even when I'm receiving a sacrament, desire is still crucial. So this would be the second part of the. So Catholics aren't just working out their, um, the same as for the Protestant in one's God corner. My desire when I receive a sacrament is what opens the door more or less to Christ's filling me that for that vein reaching the um, the toe or the ankle wherever I am, and um, yes, I can have a clogged artery with the lack of desire, the lack of hunger and thirst, and in all different degrees. So it's um, yeah, it's a, it's a union, and that makes sense, right? Because Christ is sanctifying us in a way that matches our condition. And we're not just inert, right? But we um, have to dispose ourselves more or less. And that's the whole role here of faith, as well as as desire in that disposition. But he's got to be the active partner, right? He's got to be the one. Otherwise, we're Pelagians. Um, and so that's why the sacraments are the ordinary means. That's Christ giving. Yeah, I think that's wonderful. And there's such a logic to that. There's such a logic to that that... That, I mean, God works in those ordinary, very basic elements, very basic things, and he, he gives us things that are very basic because he knows we, we need it that way, right? I mean, he's our designer, our creator. I, mm-hmm. I think of, I don't know how to express this, I try to all the time, the, the difference that you find becoming Catholic from being in different faith tradition, the ability to have those tangible signs and and those things you can hold and touch and, and, and taste and see and and consume, that is a grace unlike anything I've experienced as a non Catholic where I'm trying to I'm trying to listen attentively to the pastor to to try and learn new things. Right? And of course we have homilies as well in, in at, at Mass, but it's not the center point of the thing. The center point of the th- the thing is the tangible thing that I do that that makes me more like Christ, right? That, right. Or that Christ is doing, yeah, right? Yeah. Tangible thing that Christ <laughs> is doing that we're um, receiving and allowing Him to operate. But again, all of the other things are so important too: homily, my life, prayer life, and my scripture study, my desires, because that's going to enable me to be enriched more by His sacramental word. Yeah, like we talk about the the, the, the fullness of the Catholic faith, right? And and that's. That's it, right? I mean, that's there, there's such a more such so much more fullness in receiving yeah. those those sacraments, right? It really unlocks a, a whole other use a channel of of sacramental grace in in that. Yeah, even something like so. Let's take baptism again, and um, so something that um, common to all Christians, but nevertheless, Catholics understand there something um, imprinted that endures. We call that character. 
So a beautiful thing about the sacraments is that um, they're not their action isn't limited to the moment we receive them. So in the case of baptism, and um, yes, we're baptized perhaps as babies and we don't remember it later, um, but we get imprinted with something, an image of Christ that lasts throughout our lives. And that's something that we can always call on and is the source of graces today. And the same thing um, with regard to confirmation, right? We're imprinted even more deeply with an active image of Christ, right? That, that is at work today in granting grace. So right now, um, so not just at the time that I'm receiving, right? But the sacrament is active um, when I'm in my God corner, right? And so when I'm desiring to be a better, let's say, witness of Christ in my family, in my life, in my workplace, I'm drawing on the sacrament of confirmation that is going to be active all through my life. And let's say I'm desiring to be a better husband and father. I'm drawing on matrimony, right? Yes, I got married 40 years ago almost, and 39 and three quarters. And, um, and, but I can draw on it today, and I need to. I better be drawing on it today. And so the sacraments are unleashing graces we call them actual graces, the graces that we need to sanctify our life and throughout the day. But again, with that intimate um, union of sacrament and the disposition of faith and, and desire that together make um, the sanctification that Christ wants to. He's the active partner, but we have to be um, active recipients, as it were. And he gives us the strength to be active recipients. <laughs> that's fantastic I, I love that that's a great picture and congratulations on almost 40 years of marriage that's also <laughs> a fantastic milestone the the idea uh, maybe one last question for you the the idea that there's an economy taking place here the sacramental economy is the subtitle of of your book uh, i think sometimes we i don't think in catholic circles necessarily but in other circles Say, say Calvinism or something, it's, the, salvation is reduced to this, this transaction, right? This very transactional kind of economy. Like I'm, I say this, this prayer, I am saved now. Maybe I can lose it, maybe I can't lose it. But it's this very transactional kind of language sometimes. So how do we avoid, as Catholics, the idea of this is a transaction? I'm going to... Because I, mean, I, know, I know in my life the sacraments are, are incredibly edifying, and you've spoken so eloquently about this as well. It's, it's this whole... Life lifestyle, if I can put it that way, that's a little bit trite, maybe, uh, of the sacraments that really infuses my whole life with the, this grace. But to that non-Catholic Christian who might hear this, and it sounds like, not this interview, because you've spoken very well, but hear sacraments, mm-hmm. and, and hear this kind of transactional right. language, what do you say to somebody who's, who's kind of stuck there in this transaction <laughs> of, I do this, I get this, I carry on kind of thing? No, fantastic question. So, yes, that is a huge problem, right? That's not a small thing. This is the biggest problem, I think, for practicing Catholics, is the danger of doing things by rote and forgetting what's actually happening, right? Forgetting that this is an encounter with Christ. And so I might be, yes, thinking that I'm doing... A, so what we mean with economy here is, is it comes from the fathers of the church. They speak of the economy, meaning the incarnation. Right, that's the economy. And so why do they use this word economy? Um, because it's an exchange, 
right? So economy would be the, it comes from in the Greek, um, the running, the distribution in running one's household, right? So the, the head of a family giving to spouse and children and uh, servants or slaves. Or, um, but um, so what we mean here is Christ is the head of this household and he's distributing the um, to us what we don't have. And that's a share of his divine life. And he's taking on something from us. So it is an economy in both senses. He's taken what is ours, human nature, obedience, death, all of the aspects of human life, work, family life, et cetera, and, 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 and rising. And then he's giving us a share of his divine life lived through all of these aspects of life. And that's the kind of exchange, taking what is ours to give us what is his and elevating us what is ours. And so he's chosen to do that, yes, by becoming man, but also after ascending through the sacraments, continuing this exchange. So the sacraments are the privileged points in which we receive what is his, above all the Eucharist, right? We receive the whole, everything that is his, but in the in confirmation, receiving the Holy Spirit, right? That is his to give in the sense that everything is that his Christ is the spirits and vice versa. And giving us the life of the Father, giving us a share of his sonship. Right? So that's the sense of economy. So it's not getting, um, so too often we might think, all right, getting the forgiveness of my sins. But that's not, that's the, a mere negative, right? What we're really getting is a share of his relationship with his Father, right? With his sonship, of his penance. In other words, his sorrow for our sins. That's part of what we're receiving in the sacrament of penance that leads us to contrition and forgiveness. And so we tend, yes, there's no Catholic, myself first, who takes in what we're, who realizes, who can grasp what's being transacted in in the sacraments, Christ's life. And we can only grasp it progressively. And by living it, not fully grasping it, and not giving up, and not retreating, because we recognize we're doing it too much, which is always going to be true. Um, but yeah, so I just, I, it's, we need to wake, wake everyone up, right? We're all in varying degrees. Sorry, no offense to anyone, because nobody's ex- exempted here. We're all asleep in, in varying degrees to what's really happening when we go to Mass, right? Nobody can take it in. When I go to Mass, what's happening? I'm made present at Calvary. All right, I wasn't there 2,000 years ago, so Christ is making it possible for me this morning. Yeah. And what am I doing there? I'm offering God the Son to God the Father. And then I'm offering my own little life, my family life, my work with his life. And I'm offering my um, sorrow over not conforming more with his life. And that's a beautiful offering too. And um, and then what am I receiving? His Himself in everything that he is. Right, so we can't take it in. We can never fully take it in. But anyway, that would be my answer. We all need to be woken up to what's really happening in this sacramental economy. And we'll only grasp it when we no longer need sacraments. And that's in the fullness of the kingdom. Then we'll see what we've received sacramentally, face to face. I think that's fantastic. And of course, you called this book Touched by Christ because it's that encounter we're having, mm-hmm. right? I, I think of... 
I went to confession once as a very new Catholic, and we had a visiting priest from Ghana in the confessional, and and there was a little bit of a line, and the guy came up before me and goes, you got to get in there. I don't know who's in there, but it's like, it's off the hook. And I thought like, okay, with like one of my very first confessions, right? Maybe my first like five confessions was to this this priest, and I thought, okay, what do I, I don't know what to expect. And I went in, and it was it was an encounter with Christ. I mean, this priest went on for for several minutes after I confessed my sins, you know, speaking as as Christ would to me, like of, of how you're forgiven and like move forward and don't worry and and take this and. It was a revival in the confessional there, and I I left, and I, of course I remarked to the people who were behind me, "You guys got to get in there." Like this is, I think everyone in the line said the same thing that that was said before to me, because it was a revival in there, and and here was such an encounter, right, touched by Christ. This was a sacrament of of reconciliation, and it really was an encounter with Christ in that confessional that I, gosh, it blew my socks off. Yeah, that's wonderful. We won't always experience it like no, that. No, no. Right? We're touched by him the same, yeah. right? So yes, it's it's a great grace to have those experiences at times, but normally what happens in God's promise <laughs> is um, he gives us those when we're babies yeah. in the spiritual life, and then very often we experience dryness yeah. and the tendency to right to get worried about that. But we shouldn't be worried. We got to keep on going forward um, because that's and um, he's. <clears throat> The, the sacrament economy is an economy in faith, right? We, we receive what we don't see. And yes, we want to desire more, but um, fortunately it's so much bigger than our experiences. Absolutely. Yeah, they help. Yeah. Dr. Feingold, as always, such a pleasure to have you on the show. This book is Touched by Christ, out from Emmaus Academic. Uh, I'll put links to this book in the St. Paul Center where you can, you can get this. Uh, your other books as well. Where, where else do you want to point people towards to, to, I don't know, to follow you, to, to hear more of this kind of stuff? Obviously, I'll put a link to your fantastic books in the show notes. Uh, where else can they go? I have a bunch of talks on um, the website of the Association of Hebrew Catholics. So if you just Google association hebrew catholics and you'll find um, 19 um, talks that i gave from this book and the touched by christ going through each chapter and in a a zoom kind of format and then lots of many audio um, talks things something like 160 and and they're all free uh, on that site that's fantastic i'll put links to there as well and listeners can just listen to their heart's content they're going to want to and uh, pick up these books they're fantastic dr feingold I want to say thank you again for being here. Thank you for the work you do for the church. It's invaluable for for all kinds of people. I know that part of your work, of course, is training seminarians with these kind of textbooks. So, I mean, we, we are indebted to you and your work there as well. And sharing with us lay people this fantastic work too. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. And thanks for your enthusiasm. <laughs> well, thank you. It's always fun. Take care. God bless. Okay. Bye-bye. So I meant to mention in the intro how badly I flubbed the, the uh, Dr. Feingold's biography when I tried to read it. And I was not prepared, as I should have been, as I often am with a, a short bio. I thought I could wing it a little bit, and as it turns out, I, I couldn't. So apologies to Dr. Feingold, but all his links, his bio is in the show notes for this show. You can find it there. And fantastic books, 
please do check those out and his resources are just absolutely fantastic. Those show notes are also available at thecordialcatholic.com, our website and blog articles I write are also there as well. We're on Instagram and Twitter at Cordial Catholic, on Facebook at The Cordial Catholic, and of course on YouTube at youtube.com slash The Cordial Catholic. You can watch these episodes. Please do subscribe there if you can. That helps the channel to keep on growing and reach more people as well. And you can see these episodes too. It'd be fantastic. I got a brand new haircut. CordialCatholic at gmail.com to reach out to me. I love hearing from you guys. I write back to all the emails I get as soon as I can. I'm a bit overwhelmed sometimes, but I will write back to you when I can. And I love hearing your feedback, so thank you guys. Please do listen, uh, to, please do subscribe or follow this podcast wherever you find it. If you are listening on Apple Podcasts, leaving a rating or review helps to push the podcast out to new people. And that is really, really important. So thank you to those people who have left those ratings and reviews. Newsletter.thecordofcatholic.com gets you our weekly newsletter as well. And patreon.com slash cordialcatholic or paypal.me slash cordialcatholic to support this show financially. Thank you, friends, for listening. Guys, God bless. I'll talk to you again next week, and take care. This show is brought to you in a special way by our co-producer patrons over at patreon.com slash cordialcathy. A special thanks to Ellie and Tom, Kelvin and Susan, Stephen, Suzanne and Victor, Phil, Noah, Nicole, Michelle, Jordan, John, James, Gina, and Aram for your special support at the co-producer tier and making this thing possible. You guys are fantastic. God bless and thanks for your support.